0: It's wonderful to see you here today, ready to dive into God's precious word as we do week after week. It is a privilege, isn't it? To have the word of God, the inspired truth, to study, to feast on. May we do that well today. Back in Hebrews chapter 10, finishing up this section now, our fourth lesson on let us draw near from Hebrews ten nineteen to 25. And as I was preparing for our time together this morning, I was reminded of the very first time I received a pair of glasses. I was in the fifth grade and started to struggle to see the board in school. So my mom, of course, had me tested and turned out I did need glasses. I, by this time, had grown accustomed to living in the world without 20-20 vision. I didn't even know that I had a problem. I had adjusted to life and the biggest inconvenience was reading the board at school, which for a fifth grader isn't really an inconvenience, is it? So I really was unaware of of how badly my vision had been affected and how differently I was seeing reality than everyone else around me. And I distinctly remember driving home from the eye doctor that day with my new pair of glasses on just mesmerized looking out the window on the way home. I could see individual blades of grass. I could see individual leaves on the trees. I didn't know that people normally saw those things. I just thought everyone saw green and brown blobs like I did. And I'm like, mom, look at this. You can see the the leaves on the trees. You can see the blades of grass. Even today, though I've switched the contacts, if I wanna see the world as it truly is, I need a corrective lens. And the book of Hebrews has taught us that we too need a corrective lens when it comes to our our spiritual vision, being able to see the world rightly through the lens of Jesus Christ himself. If we're gonna walk in a manner worthy of our calling, as Paul would call it, then we've gotta see ourselves rightly, we've gotta see one another rightly, and we've gotta see the world rightly, and we cannot do that on our own. We need the lens of the Lord Jesus Christ To see correctly. And what I want us to understand is that what the author of Hebrews has been calling us to is not an invitation to some form of Christianized escapism where we use our meditations on Christ to sort of close our ears and and close our, our eyes and say, I can't hear you, I can't hear you to all the things going on in life. No, instead, he's calling us to put on the Lord Jesus Christ, to clothe our minds with Christ as we meditate on his superiority. And then Christ becomes the lens through which we see everything around us, through which we see each other. What he's gonna teach us this morning is that if we think that we have to take our eyes off of Christ to look at others, we're dead wrong. Instead, what he would have us do is look at others through the lens of Christ, never taking our eyes off of Christ. As we fix our eyes on Christ, it causes us to rightly consider one another. That's what we're going to see in our passage today. Let's read together Hebrews 10, beginning in verse 19 all the way to verse 25. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Today, we close out this section of this great theme that we've unpacked over the last few weeks, the the riches of Christ's superiority, motivate sincere worship, steadfast hope, and intentional fellowship. And we'll be looking at the third of those motivations today. Remember, there are two possessions that motivate these three practices. The first possession was a great confidence in verses 19 to 20. And we have a great confidence to enter into the holy place, purchased for us by the blood of Jesus. He invites us to enter into the holy place, The second possession that we have is a great high priest. We have the Lord Jesus Christ ministering on our behalf in the heavenly places and through the spirit in our lives every day. Those two possessions have led us to the study of these three practices. The first two we've looked at, practice number one is to draw near to God. This is obvious if we've been given access and invitation to the holy place by the blood of Christ, we ought to take advantage of that and draw near to God. And we ought to draw near to God, he says, in three specific ways or, or with three specific qualities that should define the way we draw near. Draw near with sincerity of heart, assurance of faith, and remembering our condition. But secondly, last week we looked at the, the second practice, which is to hold fast to Christ These two possessions call us to hold fast to Christ, to exercise the muscle of faith, to to hold fast to our confession of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is who he says he is and he will do what he says he will do. And remember, we learned that we can have confidence that we will indeed persevere holding on to our confession because it's he who holds on to us. He himself is faithful. Not one of the promises of God in Christ will fail to come to pass. God will do it. But that leads us then today to a third practice, practice number three, stir up one another. Stir up one another. Let's read again, just verses 24 and 25. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near stir up one another. Let's begin by looking at the admonition itself where he says in verse 24, and let us consider. Let us consider. This follows the same pattern as the other two practices. This is a a first person plural. Let us, he includes himself in the admonition. And what we have to understand is that this word consider is crucial. Understanding the impact of the word consider affects the entirety of the rest of the passage. This is not a casual action, it's not a passing thought. Uh, the, The leading Greek lexicon translates this word consider as to think about something carefully. In other places it's defined as immersing yourself in something. So this is a call for us to intentionally immerse our minds in a certain subject. Something is to captivate our attention. It's proactive. It's gonna require sustained mental effort. So what is it? What is it that the author would call us to, to give this immersion to our minds? And let us consider how to stimulate one another. Now to this point, each one of these practices has focused squarely on God. Draw near to God. Hold fast to your confession of Christ. But now the author wants us to understand that if we're properly meditating on and looking at Christ, it will also naturally affect the way we look at each other. It will have an effect in our local body, in the way we live life together. Let us consider how to stimulate one another. We're called to an intentional consideration of God's people. And this is a truth that, that is so needed in our culture today. If you're in Christ, understand that God has indeed personally saved you as an individual. He has rescued you from your sins and the wrath that you deserved, and he's brought you into, in, into his body. Absolutely, you have a personal relationship with God, but you don't merely have a personal relationship with God. God has also saved us corporately, God is not just redeeming individuals that will then remain on an island separated from one another. No, he's he's redeeming a people, a redeemed humanity. We are saved together, corporately. This is an intimate, eternal relationship. Not just with Christ, but with each other. What we often think about salvation, and rightly so, is this, I've been brought into an intimate, eternal relationship with God. Amen, yes you have. And with every other believer. Think about that. He's brought you into a special eternal relationship with every true believer sitting in this room today and across the world and throughout history. And so yes, you have a personal relationship with God but if we get so infatuated with with just thinking on me and God then we'll miss the fact that it's also we and God. The corporate aspect of our relationship with God. We're part of a redeemed humanity. You will not be brought to heaven and live in heaven on an island where you just commune with God one on one. Every scene that we see in heaven, when we get a glimpse into heaven, what do we see? Myriads upon myriads of angels and myriads and myriads on myriads of people saved a redeemed people with one voice calling out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. We will be together. And it ought to affect the way we're together now is what we're gonna find out. That intimate relationship with Christ begins now and that intimate relationship with God's people begins now. It is to be the way we live. You know, most of the time when we think about the New Testament illustrations of the church, we're given several, we think primarily about what those illustrations reveal about how we're connected to Christ. And rightly so, Uh, they ought to but they also reveal how we're connected to each other. Think about some of the key illustrations in the New Testament that describe the church. In Ephesians, the church is described as a a building, a spiritual house where we are bricks in that building and we are attached, cut out to fit together on the foundation of Christ, the cornerstone and the apostles and prophets. The Bible says that we are the body of Christ, Christ being the head, that is the, the emphasis, yes, but we are connected to Christ, the head, but also if we're a functioning body, we're connected to each other. We're intricately connected as a people. The church is described as the bride of Christ being made ready for her wedding day on his return. Notice it doesn't say that I am the bride of Christ or that you individually are the bride of Christ. We the church are collectively the bride of Christ. And finally, that wonderful illustration of the church as a family that God is our Father, we're adopted into his family. Christ, amazingly, not only our Savior and Lord and eternal God, but our brother and we, brothers and sisters, in the family of God, adopted together forever. Think on how these illustrations speak not only of the intimacy of our relationship with God, but how they speak of the intimacy of the relationship we're to have with one another. So, we don't take our eyes off of Christ in order to see each other. We leave our eyes on Christ and see each other through that lens. Our consideration of Christ ought to affect our consideration of his church. Now, don't miss what specifically we're to consider about each other. And let us consider how to stimulate one another, it says. Now, I don't really love the translation stimulate. I think the word, a better translation would be to stir up. That's what the word really means. Let us consider how to stir up one another or the word provoke. Literally, it means to provoke. The reason that most translators shy away from that is because we use the word provoke usually negatively. Um, Don't provoke your children to wrath, so on and so forth. But here it's, it's meant positively. Stir each other up, provoke each other, he says. This is to be intentional. You're gonna have to discipline yourself as an individual to intentionally consider, meditate on how you can come alongside individuals in the local church and stir them up. That's what he's calling us to. Well, what is it that we're to stir them up to do? Here's the goal. We are to stir them up, it says, to love and good deeds. Stir them up to love and good deeds. So we come alongside, we stir them up, we provoke other believers to grow in their love and to grow in the consistency of good deeds. Love, of course, is the chief virtue of the Christian. We see it heading the list of the fruit of the spirit in Galatians 5, 22. We see an entire chapter devoted to Christian love in 1 Corinthians 13, describing how our love for one another ought to shape the way we serve each other and use our gifts in the church. It was after all love that Jesus said would be the defining virtue that the world would see in us and know that we are his, John 13, 35. By this, all men will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. The watching world then is to see the church, to see us as a local body, a group of people with no blood relation, with different ethnic backgrounds, different economic status, different personalities, different preferences, different strengths and weaknesses, and yet a group of people who love and serve one another to a level and degree that most blood families would envy. This is the church. And this is why the world looks at it and doesn't understand. And they take note, those people follow Jesus. It is our love that testifies to the world. So it is that we're to come alongside and stir each other up to greater levels of love for Christ and for his people and for the lost world. But secondly, we are to intentionally consider how to stir each other up to good deeds, it says. After all, the New Testament is clear that God has not redeemed us so that we might isolate ourselves in a bunker with a, with a stockpile of MREs waiting for his return. That's tempting, isn't it? As the world crashes around us to say, you know what? Let's just kind of buy a place. We got a lot of canned goods. Let's just hang out together. Somebody bring a guitar and we'll sing and wait, right? Until the Lord returns. But no, that's not what we're called to do. We are saved, the Bible says, unto good works. This is all part of the plan. Ephesians 2.10, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. And to accomplish those good deeds, those good works that that he's given to us to do, he has gifted us with the gift of his character by the fruit of the Spirit as the Spirit works in us and spiritual gifts to edify the body. 1 Corinthians 12 verse 7 says, but to each one, that is every single Christian, to each one is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. That is, you have a spiritual gift God has given to you for the common good of his people, for the local church. First Peter four ten and 11. As each one, notice again, each one has received a special gift, employ it, that is, use it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. And he breaks those gifts into speaking gifts and serving gifts but we're to do it for the body of church to the glory of God. So we've gotta give intentional thought then of how to come alongside, how to consider one another in this local church and how to stir each other up to greater level of, levels of love and greater levels of good deeds. So the practical question is how? How do we do this? How does this stirring up take place? Well, of course, if we want to know anything in scripture, if we want to apply any truth, we need to look no further than our Savior. Our our Savior was perfect in stirring up others to love and good deeds. How did he do that? Well, he did it primarily by intentionally committing himself to love and good deeds. It was the love and the deeds of Christ that stirred others up to love and to good deeds. So what are some of the ways that Christ did that? We could study this for, for weeks, of course, but I've just picked four examples from the life of Christ of how he effectively stirred others up to love and good deeds. Number one, he did it through loving, truthful speech. Loving, truthful speech. In Mark 10, verses 17 to 21, we have this scene between Jesus and the rich young ruler. I love this. It says, as he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, What shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, I've kept all these things from my youth up. I've done all those, he says. Now, Jesus knew, of course, he hadn't, but the man didn't. Notice Jesus' response in verse 21. Looking at him, Jesus felt disdain for him. Is that what it says? Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him. That takes me back every time. Here's this prideful man. He doesn't see himself clearly. He's just arrogantly said that he's perfectly kept the law. Jesus, who inspired the law, who perfectly is actually keeping the law, is hearing this knowing with full uh, full awareness this man has not kept the law and yet he's not incensed and said it says, he loved him and said. Out of that love he says to him, one thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. What did Jesus say? Did he say you can earn your way in if you sell everything and follow me? No, what he's saying is you have an idol in your heart, you don't see it, you love your possessions. If you're willing to deny yourself and follow me, you will have eternal life. A second way that Jesus stirred up others to love and good deeds was by selfless sacrificial service. Selfless sacrificial service. John 13, this amazing scene as Jesus is nearing the end with his disciples, Jesus knowing that the father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper and laid aside his garments and took a towel. He girded himself, taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Now, just take yourself there for a moment. I know you know this story, but pretend you don't. This is, this is Jesus, the Prince of Heaven, eternal God, who spoke the world into existence, who is even in that moment sustaining the world by the, by the word of his power, gets up from dinner, takes on the garments of the lowest slave in the house and does the, the task that only the lowest slave in the house would do and he washes the dirty feet of his disciples. And he says, go and do likewise. It's a call to selfless. Humble, sacrificial service. Jesus stirred up others in this way. Thirdly, we see Jesus stirring up to love and good deeds with unmerited, gracious love. He extends unmerited, gracious love. The verse we read earlier from John 13, 35 comes in a context, so now I want to read the verses that precede that verse, beginning in verse 33. Little children, I'm with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And by this, all men will know you're my disciples, if you have love for one another. How had Jesus loved them? This was an unmerited Gracious love, Jesus had had plucked them out, he chose them for this task, brought them into his inner circle. The scripture goes on to describe in other places like Ephesians one, that for every single Christian this is true. God has set his unmerited love on you, plucked you out of your death and darkness and saved you. This is unmerited, gracious love. He says, extend that to others. He stirs us up to love by his love. And then fourthly, heartfelt, genuine prayer. One of the ways that Jesus stirred others up to love and good deeds was he was a prayer, a man of prayer, Luke 22, 31 and 32. This is such a powerful moment between Jesus and Peter. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. That is, Peter, Satan has asked for permission to test you and find out what you're made of, essentially is what that means but I have prayed for you. I love that. I've prayed for you, that your faith may not fail and you, when once you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. Jesus prayed. He loved his people. He prayed for his people. John 17, the high priestly prayer. Hebrews 7, 25. Even now, he intercedes for us continually. He's still praying. Prayer is one of the, the great ways we can stir each other up to love and good deeds. If we're gonna stir each other up, then it's gonna mean that we, we've gotta commit ourselves to love and good deeds. Jesus stirred others up because he was a man of love and good deeds. And as he performed that love and good deeds, it stirred others up. We've gotta be the same way. Let me ask you, are you willing to spend intentional time with other members of this church to speak truth to them lovely, uh, lovingly and patiently, to encourage them, to strengthen them in the faith? Are you willing to sacrificially serve the people in this body, even willing to do the things that no one else wants to do? Are you willing to love this body of believers and graciously overlook their rough edges and the things that rub you the wrong way and choose to love them in spite of themselves as you're asking them to love you? Will you be faithful to pray? for the members of this church, praying for them face to face in person as you have opportunity and praying for them behind the scenes. As we commit ourselves to imitate our Lord in these things, we will stir each other up to love and good deeds. But the author of Hebrews goes on to say that if we commit ourselves to these things, it will produce in us two particular resolutions. We will resolve ourselves to two particular things The first resolution here is the resolve to gather. The resolve to gather. This is verse 25. Not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some. Now in context, don't forget the spiritual apathy that these Christians are going through. These are are Jewish Christians, likely, the majority of them. And and they're going through a time of spiritual apathy to the point that some of them have even stopped coming to the weekly gathering. They've begun to forsake the weekly gathering. And the author is teaching us here that Christ, the head of the church, has already arranged our lives in such a way as to foster opportunities to stir each other up. Even under the old covenant, remember, God built in the rhythm of weekly corporate worship as the foundation of his relationship with his people on the Sabbath. The Sabbath was a day of rest, and it was a day of worship. But Christ, of course, fulfilled the law of Moses, fulfilling those regulations, and now we're in the new covenant, we're not bound by those Sabbath regulations. And yet, notice that the New Testament Christians did not see that as a license simply not to gather just because the Sabbath regulations were gone. If anything, the early Christians saw it as a license to gather more. Acts chapter two, after the day of Pentecost, verse 46, day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple. Going down to verse 26, it says that the Lord was adding to their number day by day, because this this was a daily occurrence for them. And, And very early on in the life of the New Testament church, we see that the, the Sabbath meeting quickly became replaced by a meeting on what was called the Lord's day. This is what it's referred to in, as in Revelation one with the apostle John in verse 10. He says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. What is he talking about? The Lord's day was for the New Testament church, the day of corporate worship, not the seventh day of the week, which would be the Sabbath, but the first day of the week. Now, why the first day of the week? It's because we serve a risen Savior. The church determined to meet on the day that Jesus rose from the dead. And from then on, it became the Lord's day. This will be the day, primarily, that we will set aside every week to gather together as God's people We know it became the first day. We see Paul referring to this day to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 16, verse two, on the first day of the week, each one of you is to put aside and save. He's talking about the offering for the church in Jerusalem. The reason they were to do it on the first day of the week is because that's when they would gather. They're to give a little bit each week to save up for that offering. So since the earliest days of the church, Sunday has been the official Lord's Day because we worship a risen Savior every single week. Not just on Easter, but every week is Easter in that sense. But what the author of Hebrews is saying to us here then is that the weekly gathering of the church is not optional. No, we're not under the Sabbath regulations. Does that mean it's optional to meet? No. He says, do not forsake. The gathering, the word forsake means to intentionally separate yourself from someone or something. Don't intentionally decide to separate yourself from the people of God and the weekly gathering. Make it your habit, he says. This is a pattern of life. He's not saying that a person can never go on a trip or stay home because they're legitimately sick. What he's saying is the pattern of your life, the habit, the custom, of your life is to be to gather on the Lord's day. And how do we know that? Because he's speaking in the negative here. He's saying that some have given in to making a habit of forsaking, of not meeting. Don't be like them, he says. The, The positive admonition then is make it a habit, a custom to be with God's people on the Lord's day. Now, the question is why? In this context, why does it matter so much? Why do we need to not forsake the gathering? Obviously we understand that to separate ourselves from the body of believers is to do great spiritual harm to our own spiritual life. It's a detriment to you not to gather with God's people. That's true but that's not the point here. Notice the primary point here on why we have to be careful not to forsake the gathering is because we primarily do not gather for our own benefit but for the benefit of others. In fact, as we think biblically about why we gather week after week, we can put it in the categories of the two greatest commandments of the law. What did Jesus say they were? One, love the Lord your God, essentially with all your being, heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then secondly, love your neighbor as yourself. What do we do when we come together? First, we gather for the glory of God. We come together to worship God because he's worthy of that worship. And secondly, we gather so we can stir up other believers to love and good deeds. We gather for each other so that we can be a benefit to them. Unfortunately, this this is a mindset that's been almost completely overshadowed in evangelical churches today. Far too many American churches have foolishly replaced the primary means of gathering, which are the worship of God and the building up of his people for personal edification. we've acted as if that church services exist as sort of God's version of a self-help seminar. What do you need? What are your needs? We got it. Come on down the street on Sunday and we'll fill you up with what you need. The scripture says, no, you come to give. Do you come and receive? Of course you do. How can you, can you sit under the word of God and not be built up as a Christian? How can you rub shoulders with other godly people and not be built up and encouraged? Of course you are, but is that why you come primarily? No, you come to pour yourself out, to give yourself to the glory of God, worshiping him with your full heart, sitting under his word, and then getting up and finding someone else to encourage and to stir up to love and good deeds by your love and good deeds. This is why we gather This is why it's so dangerous to forsake the gathering. It's not just about us. We're not just here for ourselves. God's given you a gift, Christian, and he's given you a gift for these people. If this is your local church, these are the aim of your gifts. Use them, stir people up in the name of Christ. Let me ask you, how intentionally do you prepare for the weekly gathering each Sunday? And when I say that, I don't mean your physical appearance, and and that's fine, to lay out your clothes and all those things, I do that on Saturday too. I'm talking about how much time do you spend thinking and praying about how you're going to come into this place and stir someone up in the name of Christ? How much time do you devote to that? It's so easy, isn't it, just to sort of barely kind of eek in here, right? Been a struggle to get the kids ready. This one's screaming at that one and that one forgot his shoes and we had to go back and we barely made it and there's Cheerios everywhere and it's, it's chaotic, right? And you just kind of eke into church and whew, we're here. We've got to discipline ourselves to think better about why we're here. Prepare your mind and heart to come and stir someone up. You know, when we understand church this way, it changes a lot of things. We come to church and instead of sitting alone and wondering when someone will come over and speak to us, we find ourselves putting our things down, getting up and finding someone else to go and speak to and pour into. When we have this mindset, we're, we don't even notice that no one invited us to come to lunch because we're so busy trying to invite someone else to come and spend time with us. We don't even notice that no one stopped and asked to pray with us because we're too busy stopping and praying for the needs of other people. In, in addition to that, we, all of a sudden we notice that there's this desire to be open-handed with our resources, not just financial resources, it certainly includes that, we see that in the early church, but resources of time and attention. When I think this way, I I am willing to stop and look you in the face and to really ask you how you are and to hear that and want to know and to give you attention and then to pray for those things that you tell me are going on in your life. Unfortunately, sometimes I think we get more excited about stirring our coffee than we do stirring up each other. What a shame. Get your coffee, stir it up, but stir somebody else up while you stir your coffee. Don't forget why we're here. Don't forget why we've come. When when a healthy church is functioning in the way that God intends, that church will be like an electric mixing bowl, just mixing each other up. You're stirring me up and I'm stirring you up and that stirs him up and that stirs her up and the next thing you know, we're all stirred up to love and good deeds and we leave this place more, more committed to Christ than we were before, more in love with Christ than we were before, ready to go out and to reach a lost and dying world. This is how God's designed our our gatherings. And when the church functions like that, when the church is a mixing bowl, mixing each other up, it catches the attention of the world. It's then that the world says, oh yeah, those people are connected to Christ. Look at how they love each other. So if we get serious about considering one another and how to stir each other up, we're gonna be resolved to gather But secondly, we're gonna be resolved to encourage, the resolve to encourage. And, And this really has been wrapped into things we've already said, but here specifically he says that we're not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together as is the habit of some, but on the positive side, encourage one another. Encourage one another. This is intentional encouragement. In fact, the word literally means to urge strongly. And in some cases it's translated as to exhort. Only here it's really meant in a, in a softer sense and so it's translated to encourage but, but still intentional encouragement. Come alongside with intentionality. It's not superficial, it's not casual. This kind of encouragement is not content with superficial surface level conversations. We, we want to know each other, we want to press in and to encourage one another. This kind of encouragement is willing to to pay the cost of of patiently, lovingly building relationships with other people in the church for the purpose of being able to encourage them in Christ. It means we're not content to simply talk about ourselves and our own struggles. Uh, It's not that there aren't opportunities to do those things, there are, but, but our heart's desire is to quickly get to you. How can I be an encouragement to you? What's happening in your life and how can I pray for those things? God has built in to our weekly schedule this opportunity to gather. There's there's opportunity to stir people up that we have to take it. We have to come taking on the role of encourager. And notice there's nothing here about type A personality or any other type of personality. This is just if you're a Christian, no matter how awkward or uncomfortable or what your past experience has been, obey Christ and encourage other people with intentionality. This really is what biblical fellowship is. Biblical fellowship, if you think about fellowship, define it this way, it is a shared life together. It's a shared life together. It's not just coffee and donuts, but we have those, we had them this morning, but the coffee and donuts really are a connection point because we're hoping you'll bump into somebody getting your coffee and donuts, and while you're there, you'll stir them up because that's really what matters. It, it's, it's a commitment to live your life with other Christians. It, often, the time we spend together will revolve around food. It did in the New Testament. We see that they were going house to house and taking their meals together. Why? Because most of us eat uh, three meals a day. And if I'm gonna sit and eat, I might as well sit and eat with another Christian that I can build up and encourage. It's a natural connection point. So it's right that we go to lunch and we go to coffee. Those are normal connection points. But don't just go to lunch. Use the time to intentionally encourage one another and stir each other up in Christ. A good verse that lays out the sort of the categories of how we do this for one another is 1 Thessalonians chapter five, verses 14 and 15. It says, we urge you brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. See that no one repays another with evil for evil. But always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. This is how we come alongside. We encourage each other. For those, if if you're meeting with a, a brother who's run away from the Lord and he's in unrepentant sin, it's a time to admonish that brother. Love him enough to have the awkward conversation to say, Brother, sister, what are you doing? Why are you running from the Lord? If it's a brother that's faint-hearted and just beat down, that's not a time to admonish. It's a time to encourage, to come alongside with the word of truth and build them up in Christ. And sometimes it's a person who's, who's weak, it says. This is the person who, it's not that they're rebellious. They just don't know what the Bible says about their situation. They're weak, they're in their faith. They just need to know the truth. And you come alongside and you speak truth to that person and to every single one of them, you do it with patience. This is what it is to encourage one another. A lot of times as you talk to them you'll hear of physical needs they have. The Bible says it's right and good to be generous. If you can meet that need, meet it. We saw this in the early church as people in Acts chapter two were, it says they were selling their property and possessions and sharing them with one another. These are practical ways and it stirs people up, stirs others up when we're generous with them for no other reason than just to love them in the name of Christ. But what I want you to notice is that this encouragement is not supposed to wane over time. You don't reach a point in your spiritual maturity or in your life in which you know you've done your part. It's time to let the next group do the encouraging. I wanna encourage especially those of you who may be here and you're, you're an empty nester, you're in that stage of life. Our culture says that that's the time of life that's for you. You've paid your dues. You've saved your money, you've worked hard, you raised your kids. Now just kick back and take your ease. The scripture would have you think of your life very differently. If you're in that stage of life, this is the prime of life when it comes to stirring people up in the church. You have more time than you've ever had before. Uh, Many have more resources than they had when they were 20, when they're in those years. You have hopefully more wisdom and experience to offer than you've ever had before. And this is a call for you not to wane, but to excel still more and to stir the people up in the church. Get involved in the lives of people and use the time you have and use it well. That encouragement extends to every single one of us, whether you're in high school or, or retired, but take advantage of what the resources God's given you and build others up in Christ. And there's a reason why this call is urgent. Notice what it says in verse 25. But encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. All the more. That is abounding to greater measures. Why? Why should we do it all the more? It says because the day is drawing near, what day? The day of the Lord, the day of Christ's return. Here again, we see that this practice like the other two practices ultimately rests on the motivation of Christ. We draw near to God because Christ has purchased that for us. We, We hold fast to Christ because he will be faithful to his promises and we stir each other up because he's coming again. And the idea is that his coming is nearer now than it's ever been before. The fact that it's been 2,000 years since Christ has ascended to the right hand should not make us lax. If anything, we should say we're 2,000 years closer to the return of Christ. No time to waste. That's the idea. All the more as we see the day drawing near. The scriptures would have us think about the return of Christ, like preparing for a wedding. You know, when a, a young couple gets engaged, there's a, an immediate flurry of excitement and activity. Usually the mother will come and say, now, sweetheart, there's, here's, there's about 170 things you need to do, and I've got a spreadsheet, and we're gonna get this done, and we're gonna, we're gonna do these things. And, and you know, there's, a, there's, a, there's some immediate things that have to be done right there at the date of engagement. But if that engagement's going to be lengthy, that excitement begins to wane because after all, there's day-to-day things that we have to do and no one forgets about the engagement, but it's far enough away from the actual day that we, we, we just do other things. But as that wedding date approaches, What we notice is that the wedding begins to take the time and attention of those involved with it more and more and more as the wedding day comes. And on the wedding week, the week of the wedding, most people take off the whole week from work because there's so much to do to make sure that it's gonna happen in the way it needs to happen on the wedding day. Christian, we're living in the wedding week. This is the week of the wedding. The church age since Christ has ascended to the time that he will return is what the Bible calls the wedding week. Now, why am I saying it that way? It's because of Ephesians chapter 5. What is it that Christ says he's doing to his bride in this time? Ephesians five twenty-five: husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that... He might sanctify her, make her holy, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Why? Here's the goal. Here's the climax that we're coming towards. That he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. What is Christ doing in this time since he ascended to when he will return? He's redeeming his bride, he's sanctifying his bride, and he's preparing his bride for that day when he will return for her and she will see him face to face and she will see him as he is because she will be made like him. She will be glorified. So this is why we can't waste any time. It's because Christ has invited us into this process He is busy sanctifying his church and it's a work that only he can do and yet he invites us to participate in two ways. We're invited to participate individually by pursuing sanctification, killing sin, putting off, putting on. We grow in holiness individually but then we get to come alongside corporately and stir each other up to love and good deeds, and the body is being purified, the bride is being beautified, if you will, for the wedding, and so there's no time to waste. It's the wedding week, Christian. When you think of it this way, it starts to change the way you think about Sunday morning. When you think there's no time to waste, suddenly the football game that's coming on doesn't seem so urgent. Suddenly my growling tummy's just gonna have to wait because God's people are here. There's people to stir up here, and I'm not leaving this place until I find at least one soul to stir up with the love of Christ, to stir up with my encouragement. I have to be here because my Savior's coming, and how will he find us? Will he find us eager for his return, occupied with the things that he says to be occupied with, or will he find me consumed with myself, consumed with the world? May it never be. Don't you see? how important it is when we gather, how important it is to be with the church. Time is short, Christ is coming, no time to waste. When we have that perspective, suddenly Sunday morning's not even enough. I, I gotta get you to my house. We, we've gotta sit around the table. We need, let's go play golf, let's go, let's go get coffee. Let, whatever we're doing, let's do it together so we can stir each other up along the way. This is what happens when we start to think the way that God would have us think about his people. Let me ask you, Christian, when's the last time that you personally stirred up another believer to love and good deeds? When's the last time you spent time with someone in this church with no other aim than their encouragement? When's the last time you stopped and you prayed with somebody on a Sunday morning. You know, that can be one of the most encouraging things that you can do. I would encourage you, it, it's, it's fine to say, I'll pray about that. It's fine and it's good as long as you pray about it. It's better to say, hey, I'm gonna pray about that, but do you have a minute? Can we just pray together right now? Just pray with them in person and then pray with them in private and then follow up and pray with them again. But it's, when's the last time you prayed with another Christian? Has your meditation on Christ spilled over into the love for his people? Who says Christians don't need to go to church and I can have a private relationship with God without the church? It's foolishness, it's nonsense. No, we're called to love the body of Christ. Genuine love for Christ produces growing love for the people of Christ. So let's be a church that's like a blender stirring each other up, amen, in the name of Christ. But you know, maybe you're here this morning and you don't really understand why there's really such a need for the church, what, what's the fuss all about. Maybe you're a young person and honestly, you can't wait to get out of your parents' house so you don't have to spend your Sundays like this anymore. Or maybe you stumbled in today because th- there wasn't a sporting event or a hobby that you'd rather be doing today and so you, you made it to church. If that's true, let me just begin by saying, welcome. We're very, genuinely very glad that you're here. Let me also say, the church is far more precious than this. The people who are gathered here are gathered because we have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, the son of the living God. Have you come to the place where you understand you're a sinner and that your sin separates you from a holy God and you have nothing to offer to God that will appease him for your sin? Have you come to the place where you understand that Jesus Christ is your only hope, that he lived a perfect life, offered that life as a sacrifice on the cross to pay for your sin and rose again from the grave? Do you understand the Bible says if you will repent of your sins, turn from your sins in faith to Jesus Christ, believing that he is who he says he is and he's done what he says he's done, then you will be saved, eternally saved from the wrath of God and given eternal life. This is why we're here, because we love this Jesus and we love his people. Don't waste another day in rebellion to Christ. But if you're in Christ, let me leave us with three encouragements that just draw right out of these verses. Number one, commit to intentional consideration. Commit to intentional consideration. Will you commit yourself deeply, to consider how you personally can stir up other individuals in this church. I mean, really think about specific names and specific things that you can do to stir them up in their love and good deeds. Let me ask you, who are you serving right now by regularly praying for them? Let me encourage you, prepare your heart for worship, by praying for His people, and praying for opportunities to stir them up. And then when you come into the building, have your eyes up with the lens of Christ and go after the people of God to encourage them and to stir them up for his name's sake. Secondly, commit to prioritize gathering. Commit to prioritize gathering. How high of a priority is the weekly gathering of the local church to you and your family? What if we asked your kids? What would your kids say about how much of a priority the church is to your family. You know, there's so many things that we're tempted to prioritize over gathering. Time has left us, I can't go through these in detail, but let me just give you four common things that take us away from gathering. One is unrepentant sin. When we're walking in unrepentant sin, we, we don't want the light to be shined on that, and so obviously we don't wanna be with God's people. Secondly, the prioritization of lesser pursuits. You know, my kid just made this team and it's it's a great opportunity and he might get a scholarship and I know we're gonna be gone for six months but it's a really great opportunity. Or you know, Sunday's my only day to sleep in or I can't afford to take off work that day because I need that money, whatever it may be. These are things in and of themselves that, that may not be bad things but when they take priority over the weekly gathering, they're out of whack. Thirdly, the comforts of technology You know, COVID showed us what it feels like to go to church in your PJs. It was good for a day or two, but hopefully pretty quickly you had your fill because the people aren't there. Technology is not a substitute for the gathering. How do you stir people up to love and good deeds when you're staring at a screen? Now we offer it, Because there are times when people have to be away, there are some who physically can't make it and we want them to be able to gather in whatever way they can. But if you have the physical capacity, prioritize in-person gatherings with God's people. And then finally, the pain of past hurts. It's a common reason people forsake the gathering. They had a bad experience, a pastor fell, Uh, uh, someone was ugly to them or their family. Uh, And so, you know, they say, I'm done with that. Obey the word of God, trust God, Press beyond those things. Let go of the bitterness and the pain of those things and love God's people for his name's sake. Finally, commit to spiritual encouragement. Commit to spiritual encouragement. Don't leave the gathering today or any day after this without finding at least one other Christian to encourage in the faith. Stir someone up. Intentionally come along somebody today And make that your normal practice. The king is coming. May he find his bride eager and ready. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we say, come, Lord Jesus, come. Come quickly. We long for that day when we will see you shining brighter than the sun. Oh, what a day that will be. But help us until that day to be busy about the work that you've called us to, the work of sanctification, working in, in our own individual lives, seeking to grow in the truth, but also spurring one another on, stirring each other up unto these things. Help it to be our occupation. Help us to be busy in these things for your glory. And help our church to be a church on fire for, for Christ and his glory and also in Passioned in our love, not only for him, but for his people. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.